Hello. This is an episode of Picture This, a podcast where we take a little bit of a longer format and take some time going in-depth into a specific topic. And today, today we're talking about the history of Sony and Minolta. Yeah. Well, we started with the history of Sony, and then we realized Minolta and Sony, they're kind of, you can't separate the two if you're going to be talking about their history. Right. But first, this episode is brought to you by the Great, the Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a subscription on-demand video learning service where you can enjoy lectures from top professors from all around the world. These courses will stream to your TV, tablet, laptop, or phone through any web browser or available apps. You can get your free one-month trial by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Tony. The link is in the description below. Yep, and that's plenty of time to dig into their like awesome photography courses. I'll talk a little bit about one that I'm watching uh, at the moment. I haven't gotten through yet because it's like 12 hours long. They have like intense stuff by National Geographic photographers. Oh, I want to mention, because this is a podcast, you should definitely subscribe to us in iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use. And, and listen to it while you're driving or working out or something, because it's going to seem slow-paced on YouTube. But when you have some time to kill, it's really nice to kind of dig into these topics. I think it's super exciting. I disagree. I mean, I like to listen to my podcast while I'm like doing laundry or cooking or. So let's go back like 90 years to 1928. That's too far. And this is when a company called Nichidoku Shashinki Shoten uh, was founded. And this means Japanese German camera shop. I know this because I speak fluent Japanese. And obviously, if you heard my accent, yeah, it was like, I nailed it. Who's this guy? Uh, this company would later become Minolta. Um, and it's interesting that they. The translation is Japanese German camera shop because at the time, Germany was awesome at making cameras. Like all these German companies, like Leica, but others too, they were considered state of the art. And Japan was really making like knockoff stuff. Like that's kind of what Canon and Nikon would be doing, mostly knocking off German stuff. So it was prestigious to be like a Japanese Associated German camera German. shop. Okay. Yeah, and they released a Bellows camera, which didn't really. It was called the Nifa Corette. Uh, right. I think you nailed that pronunciation. Because that sounds like that uh, gum that you chew to stop smoking. Well, yeah. Every time I tried to search for it, Google would autocorrect it to Nicorette. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I couldn't find any images of it. They but, came first yeah. in their defense. Um, in 1931, the company started using, people don't agree on this, but the acronym Minolta which some people say stands for Mechanism, Instruments, Optics, and Lenses by Tashima. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like we're sure about that because it also is very similar to Japanese words that mean like harmony and rice and stuff like that. So, well, maybe that's like the cool thing about it. I, I will say it's, it's really difficult to research things that happened in japan uh a long time ago because everything is written in japanese and most of it's not online and i don't actually Our japanese speak japanese is terrible yeah <laughs> um so you you kind of read a lot of like third party accounts but people don't agree on that in 1937 they released the minolta flex and that if you look at it it's a tlr a twin lens reflex camera one of those cameras that looks like almost like a robot where it's got a lens on top on a lens on the bottom. They are beautiful. They're beautiful. You kind of peer down through the top and you look through the top lens and you take pictures with the bottom lens. And it's, it's just a clone of a Roloflex, like a German Roloflex camera. And even to this day, like the Rollies are the ones that cost thousands of dollars and are collector's items. And there's like a million different. We have a Yashica cause we, we weren't Roly level. Right. Exactly. Even now, uh, so it was common for different Japanese companies to knock off German cameras. And that's what Minolta was doing at the time. Um, and they produced that from 1937 to, it seems like about 1943. Because... What happened then, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should know. Things got dis disrupted. Businesses got disrupted in the early 40s every, in Japan. It seems like every single camera history video we do, World War II, is just a huge part of it. Right. It shut down so many factories. Yeah, and I, I couldn't find any record of what Minolta was doing during World War II. So um, I can only conclude that they just basically shut down. Whereas like Nikon and Canon, well, Nikon in particular got really like repurposed to make optics, optics for yeah. 
the Japanese Navy. So Minolta probably just shut down. So around this, well, not really the same time, but 1945. Actually, a very different time, right? This was after. This is after the we war. We kind of settled things with Japan. Yeah. Um, Masura Ibuka is the co-founder of Sony, and he started working on his own company that would soon become Sony. So first, one thing that you need to know about him, well, he was born in 1908, and he graduated from Waseda University in 1933, and then worked at Photochemical Laboratory, which processed movie film. And I thought that was really cool, because now Sony does movies. We have Sony Pictures. And it seems they also like make cameras, like video cameras. They also make video cameras, so I felt like it was all coming full circle. I thought that was really beautiful. He served in the Imperial Japanese Navy during World War II, so we know what he personally was doing World War II. And that's where he met his friend and future business partner, Akio Morita, who he would later found Sony with, but that hasn't happened quite yet. Um, I love his origin story. I love reading about entrepreneurs and seeing what they have to go through. Mm -hmm. And so he comes out of World War II, and Tokyo is a mess. It's a war-damaged capital. Um, he moves into this little narrow telephone switchboard room, and the building that he's in is just dilapidated. I mean, there were war fires. Um, the building is cracked. It's There are no windows, so it's dark. And he's trying to use all of his engineering knowledge that he has to kind of start something to be, to rebuild Japan, to kind of restart the industry and get some new ideas out there. Um, he had some other people with him that were helping him come up with new ideas. So he started a group called the Tokyo Shunin Ken Kyujo, or Totsuken, and it was the Tokyo Telecommunications Research Institute. Institute. So a lot of people were really eager to work for him because they too wanted to start rebuilding post-war Japan, but they didn't really know what to do. So Ibuka took his own salary and his own money and was using that to pay his employees, but his funds were dwindling. So what he decided was that he had to come up with an idea to actually fund this company and make some money and make it take off. And he noticed that people were really hungry for news. They wanted to know what was going on in the world, and they often use radios to get that news. But a lot of their radios were damaged during World War II. Um, the Japanese military didn't want people getting propaganda so they would damage their radios so that they couldn't tune into certain frequencies. So I, I researched this a lot. Oh, you did? It turns out every country that was involved in the war pretty much made a mandate to their people to disable all like shortwave radios. Because these transmissions could be picked up from all around the world and thus could be used by spies or they could be used to communicate propaganda. So pretty much everybody, I couldn't find Japan specifically, but you pretty much had to turn your radios into the government where they would break them. Yes. Well, they were <laughs> like they'd cut some wires or they'd remove a part or something and then they'd give it back to you broken. Yeah, so un unbroken they were banned essentially is what I read. Yeah, you, you had to get have in your big radio trouble if you had one unbroken broken or fixed so that you couldn't pick up, you know, it couldn't be a danger. So he decided that in his factory they would repair the radios for people. And his business started to take off. People caught wind of what he was doing, and he had an article written up about him. And guess who saw it? Akio Morita saw it, and that brought them back together. And he wanted to be a part of that business. Oh, awesome. Just, like, hit him up for a job. I, I don't hey, bro, know. remember me from the Navy? I could do some work. I don't know the specifics. Um, but I, I thought this was really funny. One of the first things. So he did. they did fix the radios, but he also wanted to innovate. And one of the first things he tried to make was an electric rice cooker. But there was an extreme food shortage after the war. So rice was difficult to obtain. Mm. But they needed the rice to test in this cooker. Um, and so he had... One of his family members buying rice on the black market. Oh, really? Yeah, like mm, just for testing purposes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was his. That was one of his jobs. He also did some financial things for the business, but the rice cooker didn't end up being successful. Yeah, people struggled with it, right? It like would overcook the rice, and yeah, over undercook the rice. And I just imagine like if there was a food shortage and you you're making something that ruins the food, that couldn't have been very popular. <laughs> I didn't find any official statement on that, but I'd be pretty mad if my food shortage rice was cooked improperly. Yeah. 
So then in 1946, Morita and Ibuka founded, I'm going to butcher all of these Japanese words, I'm so sorry, um, Kogyo Kabushiki Keisha, the Tokyo Commun- Telecommunications Era Engineering Corporation. And that's baby Sony, basically. So um, Morita, his parents, they were in some food industries, like for miso and some other things, and they funded their new business with 190,000 yen, which at first I thought, wow, that's a lot. It only ends up being a couple hundred yen because the yen completely lost its value. Mm. First, they were on the silver standard and then the value of silver went down and then World War II came along and the value of the yen just plummeted to a point where it was almost worth nothing. Um, They still struggle with that. Like fluctuations of the yen are still huge to Sony. Because the yen can go down, and that can make the difference between them making a profit or losing money. Yeah, and that's really stressful. And in, like, 49, uh, the U.S. started the Bretton Woods system so that the yen would be worth—360 yen would be worth a dollar. And then sometimes later— Probably part of our effort to kind of rebuild the country because the the U.S. kind of— just wrecked Japan. Yeah. And so we kind of took these awesome. measures to try to get them back on their feet. Yeah. But then, you know what happened? Then we went off the gold standard, which this new system was based on. Mm-hmm. And then it just screwed everything up again. Yeah. Um, it, it was a mess. But anyway, so uh, they have this new company together. The original founders of Sony have met, they've bonded, they've started their company and uh, Marita's family has funded it and has, the most shares in the company, and also his father-in-law becomes the president of the company. So Marita's son was a really cool guy, and I think that you would like, okay, like that, okay, obviously, you're not going to find that written anywhere except for by me. He was a cool guy, in quotes. Chelsea yeah, I Northrop. just imagined him, like, skateboarding <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, like a cigarette and cool Ray-Ban glasses. No, he had a degree in physics, so he definitely brought a unique set of skills. <laughs> if you describe somebody as a cool guy, you wouldn't jump to the conclusion that they had a degree in physics. You don't know what I like in a yeah, man. I guess not. This is it. Well, first of all, his family was involved in sake, miso, and soy sauce production, so they were business people, mm-hmm. and he was supposed to take over that business, so... He was probably being groomed for business. He had these skills. He had a degree in physics, so not a dumb dumb, Tony. Yeah, Tony. and certainly a degree in physics. Physics, physics is going to help him out with the like electronics part of it. Yeah, I know he had engineers working for him doing that stuff, but and he's kind of a man after my own heart because when I was researching him, I found this quote by him. He said, carefully watch how people live, get an intuitive sense as to what they might want, and then go with it. Don't do market research. So he really went with his gut. He was always trusting his gut. And he had this innate sense of what people would want and need. And that came into play with Sony, because a lot of their products, people didn't think that they wanted them. Headphones, for example, people thought they were very strange Mm -hmm. when Sony came out with them. And market research told them that people associated them with hearing loss you know who this reminds me of is steve jobs steve jobs was kind of brave enough to pioneer and go in different directions and not necessarily just follow other companies but have unique ideas and feel that people would like them and go with that not stuff that you could necessarily validate with market research yeah sony does do market research now i know this must be a cool guy thing yeah (laughs) steve jobs also a cool guy well, he's pretty cool. So this isn't in a super important detail, but I thought it was really neat. And I can imagine in their excitement that the company was growing so quickly that they kept having to change headquarters. Um, so they had a new wooden factory built in 1949 in an adjacent lot. So they're growing. They need more space. They need more space for their factory and their employees and things like that. Uh, let's talk about The Great Courses Plus, our sponsor. The Great Courses Plus? Yeah, the Great Courses Plus. They 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 have a massive amount of video. Over seven thousand videos from top professors, from top people in their field, like Nat Geo photographers, scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Really quality work here. You were checking out a video, right? Right, and I just want to say, like, 
you might be watching this on YouTube and we do YouTube stuff, but YouTube is kind of like haphazard, like random people throw random stuff up and Not a lot me. of it doesn't make any sense. I know our stuff is perfect, but <laughs> the fact is it's, it's hard to get good content on YouTube. And when you do, it's rarely organized in any way that's, that's conducive for learning more than five minutes of content at a time. But like right now I'm watching a series of half hour tutorials on the Great Courses Plus that add up to like, I think there's 24 sections of the course, each about half an hour. So it's about 12 hours of material led by a National Geographic photographer. And it's organized around landscape and wildlife photography. And the quality of the content is perfect. His expertise is amazing. And it's not something you can get anywhere else. It's not little five minute tips or random content made by any person any random person from the street it's knowledgeable experts like telling you everything that they know about particular topics and going into incredible detail so i think it's really a fantastic place to improve your skills if you want to be better at photography yeah but even when i go there for photography videos their other videos look so fun i find myself going to them yeah what else have you i watched? have one lined up for um you're gonna be watching it with me tonight whether you know it or not <laughs> but it's a history of eastern europe which I like history, obviously, because I'm making this podcast. But also I like history about places that I want to travel to. Yeah. Because I find that I get more inspired to take pictures if I can really appreciate the environment that I'm in. So I'll be watching that one because I have an Eastern Europe trip that I want to take. It looks really good. You can get your free one-month trial by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Tony. The link is in the description below. The pricing plans start at $14.99 a month, but you have unlimited access to all of their videos. Uh, the Great Courses Plus. Check it out. Yeah, you can sneak in some stuff for free and see if you actually like it. Yeah, yeah. They have a... Yeah. See some free stuff first. Yeah, give the trial a shot. Okay, let's jump forward to... Uh, let's back up a little and see what Minolta was doing. In 1947, they resumed operations and uh, they released the Minolta 35. 35 millimeter rangefinder camera. Sounds like a Leica. It was a Leica. It was <laughs> a Leica clone. <laughs> like a lot of you were making Leica clones and so was, Leica was Minolta. Like, it was it. Did your parents ever talk about Leica? Not my parents. My parents didn't have the money for Leicas and stuff. <laughs> no, we were just poor Texas people. My parents <laughs> didn't have, didn't have the money for Leica either, but that was the camera that they talked about wanting to have, even though they were just completely casual photographers. Well, you know what? While we're on the topic, what I have here on the desk is uh, my grandfather's Minolta. That was uh, your grandfather's? Minolta 7S. Yep. it was. It's a Hymatic 7S. And... While my family didn't have a lot of money, uh, Minolta didn't make cameras for rich people. They Can made touch it? consumer cameras. Yeah, it's a beautiful camera. still functions, and it's in great shape. Um, and it's not from 1947. It's from a later era. But it is a 35-millimeter rangefinder. And so, you know, as we cover the history of Minolta, we're not going to see lots of, like, it's not like the history of Nikon or Leica, which we've also covered, where they kind of appeal to pros, and they have these big innovations. Uh, Minolta is mostly a consumer camera company. Can I bring it back around for a moment? Yeah. The back of your Minolta camera says made in Japan. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1947, made in Japan was kind of seen as uh, like stuff made in Japan was kind of like cheap or yeah. budget. And after Sony had become popular, the company was so well regarded and so respected that made in Japan became like a badge of quality made goods. And that's because of Sony. Yeah, and that really was their original, part of their original goal, mm -hmm. to help rebuild Japan from literally the rubble that U.S. bombers left Tokyo in. And oh. Sony's a big part of that. It gives me chills, right? I know. You know what I like? It's such them? a great country. I think they've always, Sony's always had like a very clear mission. We can't even cover everything. I'd love to, love to cover the whole history. We can only kind of just like kind of get the best of bits but you should look into it more um they seem to have always had this really solid and noble mission where they didn't just want to put out products and make money they wanted to put out novel products and they wanted to change their industry and they wanted to change their country and make it better i feel like they've stayed true to that they're always still innovating and trying to make something new and interesting yeah it's amazing the the legacy that the founders left um so in 1950, we're going back to Sony here. Uh, a salesman, Akio Morita, uh, and an engineer, um, Masura Ibuka, 
Uh, they found a document published by the U.S. Occupation Forces, 999 uses for a tape recorder. <laughs> Because at the time in 1950, they, people had to be told what to do with tape recorders. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this was a, a kind of a novel thing. Yeah, well, I get that. And um, they made the G-type tape recorder, which used magnetized paper, which they called Sony tape. Cool. Um, so they're starting to get into consumer electronics here. In 1955, they create the TR-55 transistor radio, which had five transistors in it. <laughs> um, and this is when they come up with, the, well, they're traveling the world a little bit, realizing that they want to be able to sell their products elsewhere. And this is where they come up with the name Sony, which I think you know more about how they actually put that name together. Yeah. They wanted a very simple name. Um, Marita specifically really liked the name Ford. He thought it was simple, easy to say, four letters. He really liked it. And so he was looking through um, a Latin dictionary and he found the word sonus, which means sound or noise. And he liked sonus, except it was still kind of long. And then um, he thought of the word sunny, like uh calling a kid sunny boy and that felt very american that was like a very popular phrase at the time yeah and so he turned sonus and sunny into sony and it was that very simple four letter easy to say word and it stuck yeah i almost feel bad because so many it seems like every japanese company had to come up with kind of an acceptable americanized name well we're seeing just because our languages are now, so different because we have butchered every single japanese word yeah yeah He probably got tired of that. And in 1958, just another Sony gadget, basically, they, they launched the world's smallest transistor radio. Yeah, and Sony actually kind of um, invented the word pocketable because uh -huh. they said that this little transistor radio was pocketable, except it actually wasn't. It couldn't fit in a shirt pocket. So he made his employees wear shirts with a pocket that was made slightly larger. <laughs> so they can like, put it in there. I, I like that. I, know I like so. that thinking outside of the box. Mm, bigger pockets. Yeah, how It's can we make a pocketable radio? <laughs> make bigger pockets. You just need a little bit bigger pocket. It was a huge hit because it used less power than existing radios. It was a whole month's salary for a Japanese person. That's a radio. I mean, that didn't really stop people from buying it, though. It actually changed the industry from being one radio from an for an entire household to one radio per person in a household they kind of came up with this idea of personalized electronics um another anecdote about this specific model of transistor radio was that it was a huge hit in the u.s and the demand was so high that they needed japan airlines to charter a flight to meet the demand of the radio in the u.s and they just packed up all these radios and sent it off yeah and i think sony is really becoming like a household name at this point like in the u.s it's a huge company yeah it was actually bigger than coca-cola at one point more recognizable minolta meanwhile is releasing the uh sr2 uh, 35 millimeter slr 1958 so You know, nothing particularly groundbreaking about this, but Minolta is still there kind of churning out cameras, innovating, creating new cameras. Uh, 1960, another huge innovation from Sony, a portable transistor TV with an 8-inch screen. They were all about portable stuff. Yeah, and I really had to include it because look how cute that little TV is. I just love the little picture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I, I think it looks nice. I want it now. Yeah, I would definitely want one of those. Uh, um. 1966. I know I keep going back to buildings. I don't know why I find that so exciting. <laughs> But in 1966, they opened uh, their Ginza landmark building. And it's been there for 40 years. And it's become like a landmark. So I found it really sad that they're actually going to be destroying it this year. And they're going to put in this park in the meantime. I don't know if they're rebuilding on the site or what. Strange, right? I yeah. know. People are upset about it. They think that it's like a post-war architectural landmark and, and they'd rather them not knock it down, but they are. So in the meantime, Sony keeps making consumer electronics. Minolta keeps making 
consumer cameras. 1975, just another landmark that I know my nerds are going to want to hear about that Sony releases the Betamax. <laughs> Babe, nerds love Betamax. They do. Because oh, they do. Betamax is better than VHS. It's this whole story where old nerds Betamax had the better technology okay but VHS won out and Sony made the Betamax but it, it didn't really succeed and um 1978 I just wanted to play this commercial for a Minolta camera at the time the new Minolta XG7 35mm reflex camera is automatic so you can concentrate on the action while the XG7 sets itself all you do is focus and press the button. The optional auto winder even advances the film for you. With the XG7, you can change lenses fast, too. The Minolta XG7. Try it. You'll fall for it. So we just saw a video. It's their commercial, and they're skydiving. And the camera's floating with them, and they're changing the lens while they're skydiving. It was so intense and cool that I actually want that camera. <laughs> so they, they hit on a couple of points that were big at the time, like autofocus. But changing the, the lens, Minolta's largely credited for creating the bayonet mount, which is pretty much what every interchangeable lens system uses today, as opposed to the screw mount. It used to be kind of a pain to swap lenses out. Oh. So the way you kind of put a lens in and attach it, and it just clicks there and stays. Yeah. It's kind of called a bayonet mount, and Minolta gets, gets credit for that anyway. Oh, good. But I also just love to play ads from this era because I just find them hilarious. I thought that one was really good. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. I noticed it didn't have, at the end of it, the the mind of Minolta thing, but I think we're, we're about to see something from the mind of Minolta. 1980, uh, I just wanted to point out the Minolta CLE, which is the, kind of the culmination of Minolta's long-term relationship that they have with Leica. So they went from kind of copying Leica to actually working closely with Leica. And Leica's Minolta, a good sport. Yeah, Minolta gets a lot of the credit for creating the, the Leica CL, which is a really loved camera. But Minolta kind of did much of the engineering behind it. Mm. It had TTL, so it was innovative in some ways. And it was overall a, a really beautiful camera. Um, another ad that I just have to play comes from 1980. Uh Looks fun. The Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. Put on a Walkman and see the world in a whole new light. Okay, that was very, very cool. So for those of you listening, there's a guy, his life looks pretty sad, until a really cool, sassy lady puts a Sony Walkman headset on him, and then they all party down the street. <laughs> that is the experience of the Sony Walkman, right? That was so much fun. Um, but the Walkman kind of changed everything. I think anybody yeah. from my generation, if you... Throughout the word Sony, if you were doing one of those word association things and you said Sony, they would say Walkman. Did you have a Walkman, Justin? A Sony oh, Walkman? Yeah. And a mini disc player, too. I had a Sony Walkman and a Sony Boombox. <laughs> yep, that Walkman name would stay around for a long time. Um, and it had a lot of innovations with it. It was suddenly this like portable form of entertainment. You didn't have to sit down in front of the family radio. You didn't have to carry around a big radio with a speaker that would disturb people. You had your own personal entertainment that you could take with you while you were roller skating. <laughs> Apparently, that's what people did in the 80s. Um, and it revolutionized everything. And, and it was controversial. It was people, controversial. Well, it's because wearing headphones in public wasn't something that people were doing. It seemed... I don't know. Weird. It largely established this idea of having personal space in public places. You couldn't just have an open conversation with somebody who had headphones on. That's why people wear them at the gym. Take note, other people that go to the gym. Yeah, I'm wearing headphones, and that means I don't really feel like talking to you. Mm -hmm. um, 1981, the Sony Mavica. So all the cameras we've kind of covered up to this point were Minolta cameras. But this is a Sony-branded camera. and This is their first camera. Yeah. Um. But it wasn't available to the, just the average consumer 
I think they had some deal with the press to use it during the Olympics. And then they didn't come out with a consumer camera for years after this. Yeah, they they made a whole bunch of different Mavicas over the years. They but kind of continued to use like that name. That? I don't know, but if you look at it, it it's all black and has certain angles, and in some ways, it's reminiscent of the like the NEX and the A six thousand and the A sixty three hundred. Don't you think? I see a little know. bit of that family resemblance I the in same there. Thing, like the the how angular it is, and I see it. I think it's kept the bones yeah so it's an electronic still camera but it it it's analog at the same time like it the ccd sensor produces an analog video signal that it records to a video floppy disk and then you could play back these images on your tv screen Hmm. weird right yeah um I feel like we should just watch one more ad this is a minolta camera and this is the best ad that i, I think it's the last ad but I'm with the remarkable new Minolta talker. When the light's too dim, it talks to you. Too dark, use flash. When you're out of flash range, it tells you. Check distance. And when the camera's empty? Load film. It's the autofocus 35mm camera that loads, advances, and rewinds the film all automatically. The new Minolta talker talks you into good pictures. Great pictures. Only from the mind of Minolta. Okay. I have to describe that one now. It's a guy, I don't even know. It looks like he's in a newsroom or something. Like he's going to give an interview to this camera, but then the camera keeps talking to him. That's a simple one to describe. Speaking from firsthand experience, in the 80s, we just thought talking machines was the coolest thing. No. There was like what about, Night Industries 2000. What about, um? oh man, what's the show with Kit? That's what I was just saying, Night Rider. What's Knight the Rider. show with Kit? I don't even know you. I, you know what? Okay, so I, I need to just get this out. Michael there. Knight. I'm on the tail end of jet lag and a cold, and I'm not operating at 100. percent Yeah. Also, you were not actually born in 1983. So what? You don't know my life. Anyway, so was if you this brought a Pontiac, Pontiac Fiero or something, it it probably like talk to you when the door was open instead of just like a pleasant chime like we were just cramming voices into all sorts of electronics and when i stumbled across this stupid talking camera i just had to play that because that's the worst idea but wouldn't it be nice if sony like took this technology and continued to use it like maybe your your a7r2 could be like stop it with the cat pictures already um so this would be a great april fool's day video for sony oh like, yeah. we're bringing back definitely some bring of back our back favorite the old technology <laughs> the alpha talker minolta talker <laughs> ah so that one's for the history books <sighs> let's not go back there 1985 minolta launches the autofocus slrs using a patent that they bought from leica in the 70s um here's the important part of that in the u.s they call them maxim Cool. Which sounds like it should be the name of like a, a men's truck magazine? or condoms or something. In oh, Europe, they called it the Dynax, tasty. but in Japan, they called it Alpha. <gasps> Alpha was born. Right. And that's the same name that Sony decided to pick up and continue to use because, of course, it was the the brand that was working in Japan. That's the thing. Alpha works just fine. It, I mean, it communicates the same thing as Maxim in the U.S., right? Like big and strong and powerful. Sure. 1988, um, it looks like Sony is launching... They used their first consumer use still camera, the Mavica, the MVCC-1. Look at it. They un- they unleashed this bad boy at Photokina in 1988. Yeah, they must have been just like a new name in the field. I, I think we still think of Sony as a new kid on the block when it comes to photography. Um, because they, they don't have like the legacy that Hasselblad or Leica do, or even Canon and Nikon. They're... Even though they've been around for so long, and even though the Minolta brand was around for so long, the Sony brand itself doesn't have that same association with photography. We think of consumer gadgets. Yeah. Basically. I think it was an interesting choice for them to pick up Alpha, but not pick up the Minolta name. Hmm. Especially in the world of photography, where we so you think respect brands and names. Like that would root them deeper in the history of photography. Yeah, I mean... Hasselblad would later in history 
rebrand Sony cameras with Hasselblad and they'd put like a wood grip on them. Yeah. And then they would sell them for like five, ten times more than the Sony cameras. Cool. And that kind of speaks to the importance of the brand. So I don't, I don't know. I've always wondered about why Sony decided to get rid of the Minolta brand. But at the same time, Minolta didn't have the cachet of Leica. It was a consumer brand. Yeah, but Sony was also very interested in seeming new and fresh yeah. and young. Well, they they are. I mean, you still see that today with cameras. Like the people who buy Sony cameras are the ones who are more interested in the new technology mm-hmm. and who don't feel this attachment to uh, names with historical significance like Canon and Nikon. Um, 1996. Uh, this is their first Cybershot camera, the DSC F1. Pretty sweet, right? It had a 0.3 megapixel sensor. Look out, Northrop. <laughs> <laughs> and had a LCD view screen in the back of the camera, which was a f- fairly new type thing, like live view, basically. Uh, 1997, the Mavicas wrote to 3.5-inch floppy disks. And then later on, they would write to CDs. People might remember these really terribly ugly cameras, especially the ones that took the CDs, because the camera itself had to be shaped like a CD player. Oh. Like one of those portable CD players with the lens attached to it. And CDs are big. Like, they're bigger than most cameras. So you'd end up with these, like, really oddly shaped cameras. What would you even do if you wanted to access a three and a half inch floppy disk today? Well, ironically, at the time, it was way more convenient than any other mechanism because you could just put it right in your computer. We all had floppy disks. Um, this was before USB really existed. So there was no standard for exchanging media like that with your computer. You know, there weren't Wi-Fi or anything like that. So literally you'd have to, this existed because you could only put floppies and later CDs into your computer. That was like the only way to transfer data. If I had to deal with that, I would have never done digital photography. It would have been Oregon Trail. Yeah. Every day, all all the time. Yeah, they were super ugly. Um, I, I also want to point out that Sony at some point introduced the memory stick, which was their alternative of like SD cards. Yeah. Sony really stuck with this memory stick thing where they didn't want to use standard memory formats and they made you buy these outrageously priced memory cards. Okay. I just, I hated them. I felt like I wanted to express that. Okay. Thank you, Sony, for moving on from those memory sticks. I still have a bit of a grudge with it. Um, <laughs> 1999, Nikon releases the Nikon D1 which is their like pro grade digital camera. And it has a 2.7 megapixel Sony sensor. So it's an icon camera, but I wanted to introduce it in this context because it starts the relationship between Nikon, the number two camera manufacturer using Sony sensors. Yeah. And also just kind of getting the idea out there that Sony is manufacturing sensors for other camera brands. Yeah. And it's kind of debated because a lot of people say that Nikon designed that sensor, but then Sony manufactured it. Yeah. Then uh, other people are saying that Sony retained the rights to the intellectual property for that sensor, which would indicate that they probably designed it. So exactly who got what done in the manufacturing, the creation of that sensor is is a little bit debated, but it was definitely a result of a partnership between Nikon and Sony. And um, jump forward to 2005, Minolta releases the uh, Maxim 7D, maybe it was called the Alpha 7D in Japan, um, which had sensor stabilization. I just wanted to throw that out there because today Sony cameras are largely known for including sensor sensor stabilization, which is fantastic. I love that. Yeah. Um, Somehow that technology disappeared for some period of time, but it did eventually reemerge in modern alpha cameras. Okay. A year later, 2006, um, Sony buys Minolta cameras, at least the camera business. Um, And... They decide to brand their cameras with Alpha, which is a new name for Sony because they've been using Mavic and all these other names. And they continue to use the existing mount. So even with existing like A-mount cameras, you can attach Minolta lenses from back in the day and use it. So it's, it really is a continuation. Like They picked up all that technology and combined it with their sensor manufacturing technology and really put together the pieces that they had. Um, this same year, financial statements show that from Tamron show that Sony bought an 11% stake in Tamron, a Japanese lens manufacturer, which is still making lenses today. So I don't know if Sony still owns a piece of Tamron 
or not, but at the time they did. So you can see Sony is piecing together bodies, sensors, lenses, all the stuff they need to make great cameras. Um, and then in 2010, we see Sony, it took them a couple of years, 2010, we see them introduce two lens mounts, the E-mount, which is their little mirrorless system, designed mostly around being small and compact. And the A-mounts, A-mount, which is like their DSLR-like system, which is a bigger format meant to appeal to more like high-end enthusiasts and professional systems, professional photographers. So just two different systems that, and both of these are still in use today. And in fact, we just were in Thailand touring a Sony factory and you and I were divided because you brought an E-mount system, the Sony A7R2, and I brought the A-mount system, the A99. That was inconvenient. Because we couldn't share lenses and even calves and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the the two systems are still closely related like you can see the exchange of technologies between the two systems, but yeah. you, of course you can't swap lenses and stuff. Well, you can use an adapter um, and you still see the same priorities. Like the A mount is still geared towards like, Oh, it's big and heavy, but it has fewer compromises that the mirrorless system has to make a few compromises just to be small. Um, 2012 Sony releases the a 99, their first full frame a mount camera. Mm-hmm. And that remained current up until just like a couple of months ago when they out replaced it and 2012, <clears throat> I don't, well, 2012, there's a report that Sony is making the iPhone five sensor. And I couldn't find any record of who was making the iPhone four sensor or, or earlier sensors. Yeah. So Sony might've been making these sensors, but I think it's noteworthy because it, it speaks to the uh, diversification that Sony imaging has. Like they kind of divide up their business between sensor making sensors and making cameras. Those are two separate parts of their business. And the sensor manufacturer can sell sensors to anybody, including Sony cameras, Sony imaging. So anyway, Sony at this point is definitely making iPhone sensors and iPhones are incredibly popular. And it's 2012 and this is kind of the beginning of the time smartphones overtake regular cameras. And it's almost comforting and wise that Sony has a foot in traditional cameras and these smartphone cameras. And I think it makes a much better position than Canon or Nikon, who were still just like 100% in more the traditional form factor for cameras. Um, We're seeing that same theme when we look at the history and we look at the founders being a step ahead and thinking forward to the future and thinking young and thinking new. We're seeing that same theme still happening now. They're always kind of keeping one foot in the future and making sure that they're a step ahead. Yeah, and and now Sony's making sensors for, like, automobiles. You know, that's actually going to be big business when it comes to self-driving cars, which need an array. Like, a self-driving car could have 10, 12 different cameras in it for taking in its surroundings, and Sony could very well be making those sensors that that are in it. in 2015, jumping forward a bit, the Wall Street Journal publishes an article saying Sony's making $20 off of every iPhone 6 that's sold. Okay. So when you're buying idea, Apple Sony. products, some chunk of that is going, is going Sony. into Sony's yeah. pocket. So when you size up Sony's camera market, it's kind of, you can't really exclude their sensor manufacturing division. Um, and in 2014, there was a report that said that Sony was making 40% of all the world's camera sensors. Wow. So that includes smartphones as well as cameras like Nikon cameras. 2012, I wanted to bring up the Nikon D800, which it was, it's like Nikon's main wedding photographer body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the predecessor to the D810 that we still use all the time. And it was a great camera. It was really a landmark camera. But most of the reason it was a landmark camera was because of the sensor. It had this 36 megapixel sensor that blew away everything else on the market. It just made beautiful images with just tons of dynamic range and lower noise than we'd ever seen before, as well as having 36 megapixels, which at the time, every camera was pretty much 24 megapixels. So 36 megapixels added 50% more, at least potential detail if you had a good lens on it. And that was revolutionary. But really, 
no part of the camera was revolutionary except for the sensor. And that was Sony's. And that was Sony's. So the focusing system, not great. The controls were good. You know, usual Nikon stuff. The lenses, of oh course, gosh. were Nikons. But Are you telling Sony, Nikon lovers that they're secret Sony enthusiasts? It, it could be. Prepare for the hate mail. Anyway, my favorite part of the D800 was that sensor that it had. Now, the D810 came out. Nikon put in their amazing focusing system in there and, and made a much better all-around lens. Mm-hmm. But they used that same sensor from the D800, essentially the same sensor. And um, that's interesting. And in fact, Nikon hasn't, not that I could find, hasn't used any new sensors from Sony since this date in 2012. Yeah, which is interesting when you consider some recent news that we heard yeah, well, I found a 2014 interview that DP Review did with um, one of the managers at Sony that basically said they have different categories of sensors. They have sensors that they will happily sell freely, either internally or externally. And yeah. so that would include like the iPhone 7 sensor, which seems to be made by Sony. Um, it would also include those sensors that Nikon are using. But they also have sensors that they will create only for use by Nikon's camera division. So not all sensors for for Sony's camera division. That's what I meant. Yeah. So like the sensor that's in the a7R2, the 42 megapixel sensor and the a99 Mark II, nobody else has been using that, even though it's basically the best sensor in the world. they're holding on to the good stuff. It seems like Sony, yeah, they used to, they gave Nikon the good stuff before. Yeah. And now they might not be giving Nikon the good stuff. Mm, Maybe they're deciding, maybe they're deciding they'd rather be a bigger contender in the all around body as well. Yeah, so it's interesting when you're both the manufacturer of your com- when you, when you're the manufacturer of your competitors like key component you could decide not to sell it to them anymore. Yeah. And we don't know what Sony's going to do, but there's definitely that potential and and Nikon could be on the high and dry if they can't get these Sony sensors that they've largely been depending on. Um 2012 uh or 2013, Sony's uh, A7 comes out, their first full-frame E-mount camera. And then, man, they have just been releasing cameras in a flurry, like so fast. Yeah, they have. Um, the next year, the A7S, 2014, the A7S comes out, and it's this full-frame 4K camera that changed how we did video. And suddenly, we could take advantage of full-frame and shoot in 4K, and the videos that it produced were just gorgeous. And it could shoot in basically like no light at all. And we've been shooting like Canon or with the GH4. And at that time, you'll see a change in our videos. So like the production value just went up because we had access to this amazing like Sony sensor and Sony body. Not just for us. It changed video for a lot of people. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> a lot of people started using this A7S. And then the next year in 2015, they released the A7R2, which had that new 42 megapixel sensor that I talked about, and it could record 4K video internally. And these were big innovations that like really changed a lot about filmmaking and stills photography. And it, it was largely because they have this like amazing sensor. Division. I saw this camera change a lot of people to Sony shooters. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have picked up on those A7 series cameras. Um, and in 2016... Again, circling back to Nikon, but 2016, Nikon released the D5 and the D500. These both fantastic cameras, 10, 12 frames per second cameras, um, but they didn't have Sony sensors in them. They had Mm. Nikon-made sensors. I wonder whose choice that was. Right? Now, they both have good sensors, but they're both 20 megapixel sensors, so they're lower megapixel counts. Mm -hmm. And in particular, they suffered a little bit on the dynamic range. So in some ways, people noticed that the sensors were a step back from sensors that that Sony had made. So it seems to me, they don't necessarily publicize this stuff, but it seems to me like Nikon uh, isn't using Sony sensors anymore. So they're kind of scrambling to to compete with Sony, who's like a master of making sensors. And one of the biggest differentiators when people buy cameras is the image quality. Yeah. I think it's image quality is actually overrated. Like people should be factoring in form factor and lens selection and weight and battery life and stuff more. But mostly what people seem to care about is the actual image quality that the sensor produces. So that could be a really big deal for Sony. Um, another sign that Sony is really challenging the pro camera makers, Canon and Nikon at the time, 
is in 2016, they released their G Master lenses for their E-mount system. Yeah, and we at, before this point, we had complained that some of their glass wasn't at the level that we wanted it to be. Yeah, and we were always using Sony bodies with an adapter, and then we were putting our Canon or Nikon glass on it. Yeah, and this was the line of lenses that made us change our minds about that, because especially the 70-200, to we put it up against our other 70-200, to it blew it away. Yeah. The, they're phenomenal, everything's crisp, sharp, handles backlighting really well. Yeah, and this is proving, this is a new thing for Sony, to make great glass, because yeah. the glass up before the G Master series was not great. In fact, every time we did a comparison, we just came away shaking our heads. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff we, some of these reviews we published, but some of it was just for our own use, like which lens should we use for this and that? And we'd be like, well, we can't use Sony glass. But then the G Master really changed this. They made pro-grade glass that keeps up with the big boys. And now they're making sensors that keep up or that beat everybody else. So what I see coming together is like a company that could really take on and beat Canon and Nikon. They're positioning themselves to be taken very seriously. Oh, yeah. And I and their ability matched with what I think is their mission to be number one in the market. I think we can see them rising in the market and becoming one of the most popular cameras. Yeah, I, I and it's amazing how quickly it's come together. Because we started this in 1928. Yeah. But Sony... Entering the pro market has really been happening in like the last two years. <laughs> and, and man, are they just accelerating fast. Like they came out of why, nowhere. Why do you think that they suddenly pivoted and decided to go for this, for being like the pro camera? Um, that's a good question because the camera market overall has been in, in decline. decline. Yeah. And you wouldn't think it'd be a way to make a lot of money, but man, did Sony ever decide to go after it? And and it's amazing that they're actually being as successful as they are at it. Oh, geez. Because a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have even thought about bringing a Sony camera for like a portrait or a wedding shoot. But between the A7R2 and the new G Master Glass and uh, the A99 Mark II, it's like, that's what I would choose. Yeah. I would pick it over Canon and Nikon varieties. Um, here we have a slide that... I love slides. Oh, yeah. And we love Google Trends, right? This is a slide that you put together showing from Google Shopping, showing how many people are searching for Sony, Canon, Nikon, and Fuji cameras uh, over the last, like, nine years, basically. And what we see is that Sony isn't new to the market. They've been around this whole time, but for most of this time, they've been making consumer cameras. It's only recently that they've been making, uh, like, professional-grade cameras. Um we see, well, the industry overall is in decline. Yeah. But what, why it confuses me that they're putting so much money into being number one in a declining industry. I know. I wonder that but too. But you know what? I wondered if they're not, I, because you see photography isn't actually going away. It's just shifting to smartphones. And I'm wondering if they're positioning themselves to not only be number one in the pro market, but to bridge that gap between smartphone photography and you know, to make a new compact camera, basically, and bridge the gap and somehow get those people back into buying cameras. I don't know. Yeah, and, and they own an awful lot. They have their foot in many different pools here, right? Because they, well, first they have their entertainment division that actually produces movies. But they yeah. also have video cameras that they could use to film those movies. And they have TVs and Blu-ray players that they could use to... Uh, project those movies and let people entertain them. So they kind of have like every piece of the entertainment yeah. puzzle. So maybe that's part of their vision is they actually want to own all of that. Um, so just describing this chart for people that are just listening, we have Canon in red, and it's this line that goes from being um, at the very top and the most popular, and then over the nine years you see it just declining. It's still on top, but other manufacturers have really caught up to it more. Um, and then you also see, what's that? The blue line is Sony. And up until uh, about 2011, Sony was number two behind Canon. This is in Google shopping searches. Yeah. So it might not be the perfect source, but it's actually difficult to well, get this kind I'd of data. I'd actually think that the older information would be a little less relevant than newer information. But Just, at the time, Nikon wasn't great at making the popular cameras, like the consumer cameras were popular at the time. 
So it, it could make sense. But anyway, Nikon has been ahead from 2011 up until um, just in the last year or so. It seems like, according to Google Shopping, Sony started to get more searches for it. Yeah. So Sony is basically, I think, fighting for second place overall with Nikon. Still behind Canon. But, but you actually see Canon and Sony closing in at the end. And that makes me wonder if Sony is going to take the number one spot. I definitely think there's that potential because in the last few years as a camera reviewer, we just haven't seen innovation from Canon. Yeah. Like they still can't produce a, a good camera with 4K footage or 4K filming capabilities that we would ever use. They still don't have really much of an option for um, electronic viewfinders. And so the options there are, are there, but they're just not up to Sony's specs. So I think there's some potential. Is that another chart that I see? You love charts, right? Oh my gosh. I could not believe when I started researching Sony, how many different industries they're involved in. I didn't know that they had a life insurance division. It's very profitable for them. So we're looking at a pie chart of how Sony actually makes their money. And not much of it comes from imaging. Imaging, the cameras themselves are about 8.4% of Sony's overall revenue. And um, their devices division is 11%. Devices include sensors, but also things like batteries. So not all imaging stuff. That's just how they break it down. So even if you were to combine those two, it's less than 20% of Sony's overall money. Um, The single biggest chunk is... Uh, gaming, 18.4%. And that's things like PlayStation. Um, but then the next biggest piece at 13.7% is financial services, which oddly is life insurance, <laughs> right? And life insurance no is the most profitable division. That's the division that, that makes more money than anything else. So this oh chart that we're looking at shows the operating income from fiscal year 2016. And financial services is making like twice as much profit as anything else. <laughs> it's so weird. After all this stuff we've covered, like we didn't even mention life insurance. Sony That's like a is big like, deal to Sony. Sony is like that guy that has a really lucrative and demanding job. Like he's like a neurosurgeon, but then he also has a very popular band, wedding band. Uh-huh. You know, like they're making their money from the boring stuff, but they like to party and they're good at it. <laughs> Um, so Sony also isn't making like huge amounts of money from this. It's hard to know because when you talk about operating income, they can take like a big expense in one year that will show like a loss. So they actually, it shows in this year that they lost money on their devices, mm. which is sensors and batteries, but it's, no shame. I don't think we can say that they lost money making sensors. It just, it can be lots of little different things. Okay. So wrap it up. 2007. What do you think? Well, this is when I finally got my hands on the A99 Mark II. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to wrap it up by saying that I've spent the last week with it, and I strongly prefer it to my 5DSR and my DA10, which have been just my go-to cameras for things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's just a better camera. It's got this sensor stabilization. I do like the sensor stabilization. Which we, yeah, saw that Minolta came up with some many years ago. But Good job, Minolta. It just it let me get handheld slow shutter speed shots without using a tripod. That made a big difference to me. It has an electronic viewfinder, um, which previews my exposure. So I don't have to review my pictures on the back of the screen and then check my exposure and make adjustments and reshoot. Like you just kind of nail things the first time through. So it felt like the best of both worlds for you. Yeah. Um, I think my big concern with it is that Sony seems to be investing all their money into the E-mount system. They still have these two systems, the A-mount and the E-mount. And it's not, I thought it was crystal clear that they were abandoning A-mount and putting everything into E-mount. Yeah. But then they came out with this super awesome A-mount camera. So are you wondering if they're going to have good lenses to go with it? Yeah, or if there's ever going to, it could, what if it's the very last A-mount camera? I wouldn't want to drop 10K in this system and not know what's going to happen with A-mount in the future. That'd be so sad, Tony, because you found this camera you love. What if they just don't do anything else with it? I know, but I, I, anyway, we haven't done a formal review of the A99 Mark II yet, but I just want to say, like, it was a fantastic way to show the culmination of all the work that Sony has done. It's a fantastic camera that solidly beats the the Canon and Nikon, what? the old legacy. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to so. try it. I haven't really gotten any time with it. Yeah, it's a great camera. Okay. Let's say thank you to our sponsors, The Great Courses Plus. 
if you want to learn photography through or videos. Or pretty much anything else. Cooking, chess, history, Lots science. Lots of business stuff on there. You get a ton of science stuff. You can get your free one-month trial by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Tony. You can click on the link down below in our description. That means you can try some of these great videos before you buy some of these great videos. Thanks to Great Courses Plus. You make all this possible. And uh, we'll see you next time. Be sure to subscribe to Picture This on your podcasting app. And if you left us a review, we'd appreciate it. Bye.